I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 48 for October. I'm Duncan, and on October 21st, 2015, watching Back to the Future Parts 1 and 2, on the big screen at the Academy Cinema for the first time since I originally saw them in 85 and 89 was a retreat. Seeing them with my sister Julie, who is the biggest Back to the Future fan I know was a joy, and seeing them with an audience full of fans dressed like Marty McFly, complete with hoverboards and all applauding as George punches out Biff or the power of love kicks in. It was truly heartwarming. Awesome. Um, Which makes me bad about saying the fact that, uh, look, I'm Simon and I haven't seen Back to the Future Part 2. Uh, what? I, I mentioned this because, of course, the date Marty and Doc travel to in part two came and went last week with nearly a working hoverboard inside, but a pretty funny Jaws 19 trailer, which is on our Facebook site. Uh, and also because I got ruthlessly ribbed at work for not having seen the film. Like I was sitting at this table where someone had also just admitted to not having seen a single Star Wars film. <laughs> like none of them. Um, look, if it helps, I've seen the third one. Um, I, I did help this person out by pointing out that Star Wars was about space. <laughs> if they needed, you know, any enlightening. So, what's your rationale for not watching um, part, part two, but seeing t- part I, three? Look, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a big, um, I'm not a big sequel one in the first place. So, I saw, I saw one, loved it. Had no real thought that I would love part two, or there was a great need for me to return to that. Well, mm-hmm. uh, but then one night, caught three on TV and just uh, got hooked in. Yeah, and of course it's uh, Western, which yeah. is a weakness of yours. So yeah, it yeah, totally I can is. See how it you totally is. That. Uh, so no, look, if two had been on that night, I would have watched two. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting um, having seen it on the big screen again and just seeing how uh, tight as a drum that first script is, particularly of part one. It really is just pretty flawless. Yeah. But yeah, watching two, and then they didn't show three, obviously. And they yeah. just kind of finish on the cliffhanger. Yeah, and a lot of people get heated about which is better, part two or part three which they like more. And I can see why people would like three because it uh, has closure. It's a yeah. lot more straightforward story. Kind of Even in the beginning, you could easily have just not seen any of them and probably mm. tuned into mm. that. But yeah, people still get heated about that. It's kind of like if uh, with the Kill Bill, part one and two, apparently it defines your personality, which one you prefer. R- right, yeah, that'd, yeah. Be, that'd be an interesting uh, discussion, <laughs> which we'll save for another day. But in the meantime, what have you been watching the last month? Well, I saw Welcome to the Jungle, or Office Space meets Lord of the Flies. As a weekend team-building exercise spirals into tribal warfare, blood sacrifices, and tiger attacks, despite the stunt casting of Jean-Claude Van Damme as the unhinged ex-military motivational guru, it's Rob Hubel who is the standout performer going from office douche to Colonel Kurtz in less than 24 hours. Kind of like in, you know, like The Mist, when that woman, you yeah. know, like, yeah, yeah. Gay, Gay Harden goes from, like, just you know, shopper to just cult leader. Yeah, yeah, no time at all. Like. <laughs> yeah, except this is play for laughs. Overnight in that film, just about, <laughs> yeah, eh? Yeah. yeah, just wake up and then suddenly there's this whole, we're going to just kill everyone. Yeah. And unfortunately, Welcome to the Jungle, it's just too shabby and, and knowing for its own good. If it just went balls to the wall with a satire rather than being like a SNL skit nodding and winking to the audience, mm. it could have been a real cult hit. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't doesn't really work. I saw Running With Scissors. The dysfunctional comedy drama is very Wes Anderson-like, except it is based on a true story. The memoirs of a young boy whose overbearing mother, played quite brilliantly by Annette Benning, is convinced she is destined for literary stardom and gives her son to her psychiatrist's bizarre family. And the psychiatrist is played by Brian Cox. Uh, the film is overlong, and, and the quirkiness may seem a bit paint-by-numbers in places, but the fact is based on reality, and, and just have you shaking your head, uh, as well the excellent performance by Benning. She really is mm. very, very good. Uh, I saw a couple of Asian horror films. A Tale of Two Sisters. Right, yep. A bonkers Korean horror film that has effective if generic scary moments, particularly in the first half, but then just collapses in on itself with, a, with just a crazy third act that resolves with a finale that, while tragic, is ultimately a bit of a cop-out. Have you seen yeah. this? No, I haven't seen this one. Yeah. I'm aware and, of it, obviously, yeah. Yeah, it's quite um, uh, ambiguous in places um, and uh, very esoteric. Uh, mm. Unlike Shutter, which is a Thai film that also revels in its ring origins about a photographer and his girlfriend 
haunted within the camera by spectral visions. Yep. Delivering a couple of scares, but mostly dragging for long periods. Uh, its pace picks up in the last 20 minutes, enough to deliver a truly memorable final, final image. Uh, and I saw Sicario. Oh, great. I've heard good things. Haven't yeah. seen it, but heard good things. Uh, and I ran into a uh, listener to the podcast and friend, Clayton Barnett, who said to me, Deacons has to win an Academy Award this time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I agree. Uh, and really, it speaks to the film's strengths, which is it's a work of technical brilliance. The music score, especially the sound design and the cinematography, they're just uh, state of the art. They really are top of the yeah. game. Amplifying the tension in two unbearably tense scenes. Um, and it has an unforgettable opening. Uh, while the plot itself is just a little ambling and Emily Blunt's FBI agent is far too reactionary and a bit naive for me. Benicio Del Toro is super cool, though, as a shadowy South American advisor to a U.S. law enforcement group's mission to cause chaos in the endless drug war. But the film doesn't quite know what it's going for, tipping from alarming authenticity to, like, super assassin video game. Right. Um, but it is worth checking out, and especially on the big screen, I was... Uh, it's again. It's not something that's like visual effects wise you need to see on the big screen, but the impact and the tension is. Um, haven't seen many films recently that have done mm. tension as well as that does. I saw the Riot Club. Laura Wade's provocative play Posh makes for an uncomfortable watch as an entitled elite Oxford University group hell bent on hedonism. Uh, the film speaks to the inevitable class system divide and the importance of individual moral responsibility. However, despite its rich schoolboy swagger, the Riot Club remains just a bit of a tentative piece for me, never holding its nerve enough to tip into satire, horror, or driving the stake into the heart of its subjects. It kind of just tiptoes around it a little bit too much. Mm. Max Iron's intended sympathetic lead is just a little too bland, and the group he wants to belong to are too amorphous. But rising above is Sam Claflin, he makes for an impressively odious antagonist, whipping up his peers in wild rhetoric, reminiscent of a dictator, and never once in doubt of his superiority, even reveling in correcting the grammar of people mugging him at a cash machine. Mm. <laughs> and finally, I saw two French comedies, um, 1999's hit The Dinner Game, about wealthy businessmen who host a dinner party and each bring an idiot to laugh at. While it sets up a satire and instead becomes a broad farce, which owes its laughs and pathos to the central idiot of the film, Jacques Villarette, who, rather than becoming the butt of his superiors' jokes, he just destroys their personal lives. Uh, his solo phone conversation show, he doesn't even really need his co-stars, and it's a farce that only the French can do, I think, particularly with one of its leads being just such an unlikable asshole. Like, I couldn't think right. that an English-speaking film would even attempt to well, portray the character. Well, this is being remade. Right, yeah, yeah, which, yeah, which I don't think I've seen. So Yeah, dinner for schmucks. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how they dealt with, not so much the idiot, because you can see how that translates across yep. all, everyone, but particularly the, the male lead, because they play him as, you, you're kind of shaking your head as like, really, this is your central guy, and you kind of expect me to be sympathetic for him? Right. It's, it's, it's quite weird, and it just wouldn't gel. Uh, I imagine they would have changed that significantly in the without having seen it. Yeah, I um, imagine. I haven't seen it, yeah. And last year's The Untouchables, uh, which is a comedy that has a Senegalese beneficiary accidentally finding himself caring for a quadriplegic millionaire. The relationship has a positive influence on both their lives. The leads are excellent, but Omar Sy steals the show as the effortlessly charming caregiver. Um, and yeah, it's enjoyable. It's, uh, he's, he's, he makes the film. And yeah, and so what have you been watching? Well, Lean, lean month for me. Uh, I saw Hammer's take on Sherlock Holmes, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Right. Uh, which has Peter Cushing as Holmes, aided by a well-cast Andre Morel, also a Hammer regular, as Dr. Watson. Christopher Lee is so young and so handsome and so damn tall. Mm -hmm. If you only know him as Dracula or, or Saruman, or I'm sorry to say Count Dooku, <laughs> um, then it'll come as a shock to see him as the sexy, brooding Sir Henry Baskerville. It was even for me, and I've seen a lot of his films. You yeah. Know? Uh, good fun. Loads of uh, horrible day for night footage, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and chases around the moors, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And um, I and just to interrupt, that, that's uh, I love that story. I love the hand. Mm. I always have since I was a kid. Yeah. The Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh, by far the best Sherlock Holmes story. Right, and, right. And yeah. you know, it, it sits in those two worlds as well. So I can see why Hammer did it because you know it's a horror film in essence, but it's also yeah. a, a great you know Sherlock Holmes mystery. And, yeah. yeah. Um, dripping with gothic menace and full of stylistic nods to Hammer and Roger Corman's Poe films, 
Gelama del Toro's Crimson Peak, unfortunately, is also wedded to like this 18th century Victorian novel of the script, which might have been fun if it had also played with those expectations a little more. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, the twists seem quite predictable and tame. Um, no one's going to be shocked by this film. Right. Um, and outside of some minor creepouts and a delightfully deranged Jessica Chastain, I loved her in this film. Yeah, she's she's good in uh, many things I've seen her in, so I can imagine she'd be good in this. Yeah, she is really um, creepy and fun. But but apart from that, it's a little pedestrian. Uh, but having said that, it looks as amazing as you'd expect it to. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks incredible. If you've seen the trailers, it's just oh, so beautiful. Yeah. Such a piece of design. Um. Now, I've also been listening to a great uh, podcast series about Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Three-part series. The last part was like nine hours long. And wow. it like, took me a week of like going back to and, to and from work to get through <laughs> it. Such a good listen. Uh, which has caused me to hunt out some of the masters films that, that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, which led me to 1939's Jamaica Inn. His right. last film he made in the UK before heading mm-hmm. to America. Uh, sort of regarded as one of his lesser works. But I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah. It's a romp with a first cast bit of juicy overacting by Charles Lawton and a fine and pretty strong heroine played by newcomer Maureen O'Hara. Yeah. Yeah. Loads of fun set pieces as well. Really good times. Yeah. There's a period drama. I mean, even for that time, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. And that's yeah. the other thing. I mean, if you go in expecting a traditional Hitchcock, you're not getting that at all. Mm. And it's rare to see a period drama as well. Mm. Um, I mean, he followed this up with Rebecca, which is his next film yeah. and his first American film. But... Um, and and lastly, uh, take this waltz, in which Michelle Williams is married to Seth Rogen, thin Seth Rogen, by the way. And I'm not sure why that's important to say, but it's kind of an odd little thing, you know, because right. he used to him looking a certain way. Yeah. But this was made around the time of Green Hornet, I guess. So he right. he got in shape for that film, and then just went back to being Seth Rogen. <laughs> yeah. It's normal. It's just a little blip in his career. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I I I saw him in a trailer recently uh, for a new film. I can't remember what it's called. Now I was going. He's gone thin Seth Rogen again. Oh, has he? Yeah. No, not completely, but yeah, he's gone yeah. He's gone thinner. You know, right. kind of like, like Jonah Hill kind of went, shoo, so yeah, he's down did, there, kind eh? of went back and then went back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know Seth had gone thin again. Yeah, oh, so there you oh, go. There you go. Anyway. Listen to us, it's like we're like running a gossip man <laughs> yeah, here. Like. <laughs> yeah. Woman's day. Seth Rogen too thin? Yeah, <laughs> yeah too thin. <laughs> yes. Yeah, friend shocked at Seth Rogen shocking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, anyway, Michelle uh, Williams falls in love with the handsome hipster with kind of the most fey hipster occupation imaginable. He's a rickshaw driver. Right, yeah. You know? um, and no doubt he's got like some magnificent apartment in the centre of New York. I was going to say, still affords the rent on his New York brownstone. Of course he, he lives does. in alone. <laughs> um, I was telling a friend at work about this and he said, is he an artist as well? You know he's an artist. Yeah. But he's also an artist that he never sells his work or shows it. He just paints for himself. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's not a bad film. Um, it's full of some pretty smart observations to balance out all the really on-the-nose moments. Um, but, man, is this a film of white people problems? Yeah. As I was watching, I kept thinking, what are you even doing for a job, Michelle? <laughs> and if you actually did something, maybe you wouldn't have all the spare time to fall in love with chiseled hipsters with made-up occupations. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Ridiculous. Um, and also, you know, I was talking there about um, Rogan being his thin stage. He actually had five features released that year that he was in. Wow. Which really? is a ludicrous amount of movies to be in. That is. Yeah. Especially for Seth Rogen. Yeah, I mean, two of them were voice. Uh, I forget what the Kung Fu Panda and Paul were voiceovers. Yeah. But um, I can't remember what the third film was. Uh, Take This Wild Greenhorn and one other. Yeah. A lot of movies. And there's a lot for if you're Rogen. You know, I was thinking mm. about this as well. Like a lot of, especially someone who's ostensibly a comedic actor, I think that that's often quite too much. Like, I think if you're like, oh. you know what I mean? Like if you're a dramatic actor, like if you're Fassbender or something, then you can probably pump out a few films and no one will go, oh, we've got an oversaturation of him. Yeah. But I think if you. Uh, of a limited range and you're doing stuff yeah. all in very similar genre, um, yeah, you yeah. know. I mean, I've obviously said that the comedy is a stick that runs out real fast, I think, yeah. if you don't branch out. And I guess Take This Waltz, he's, he's a supporting actor in a lot of ways and it's a dramatic role. Mm. So I guess, you know, that that's okay. Mm. But you're right, five films. Mm. You're sick of his voice, at least. <laughs> but haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the picture that got small. So, Simon, what's the news? Well, look, I don't know if you've seen Lockout, 2012's actioner starring an annoying, for me at least, wisecracking Guy Pearce tasked with rescuing the president's daughter from a prison in space. Oh, yeah. But if you did, you might have thought, huh, that was a fun enough twist on John Carpenter's Escape from New York. 
Well, it turns out, so did John Carpenter, who sued. Oh, really? Yeah, and has now just won a plagiarism case. Is that right? Yeah. The thing that makes this particularly interesting to me is that these cases are actually extremely rare, and it's even rarer when they find in the per- in the favour of the person taking the case. Mm. So it's a great win for Carpenter against Europa Corp, the company who make all Luke Besson's ropey action films. A couple of interesting things about this, though. Uh, the case happened in France. Mm-hmm. In America, I just uh, couldn't have seen this flying, mm-hmm. you know. But in France, maybe uh, the courts feel differently. Yeah. Um, and, like, uh, the money they made was something like $75,000 or something, which is just, like, um, lunch money, I imagine, for... Yeah. That's like, you know. Yeah. That barely pay the uh, the lawyer's costs, you imagine? Yeah, unless th- that didn't include costs, I'm not sure. Right. Um, but also, it's rare for a case like this to be tried against a film where you can actually see both films, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Often it's like, oh, that's a lot like a script I wrote, and the script yeah. writer will, you know, raise objections. But to have two films that you can actually compare, finished films. Yeah. You know? Interestingly, it makes me kind of actually want to watch that now, just to, to, to see. Oh, Lockout. Yeah. It's not that good. Um, yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah, I'm right. not a big fan. Uh, I found Guy Pearce actually really annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just the quippery just mm. wore me down. And but did you did you think it was like Escape from New York? Then it's got similarities. Yeah, yeah, but I wouldn't have thought enough for it to win a court case. Yeah, well, you think that it's kind of an interesting precedent because you, there's probably a lot more films that you leap to leap to mind where you're like, well, well, totally. I mean, Carpenter's made a few. <laughs> yeah. What has been the most provocative synopsis for some time? The sightseer's actress, Alice Lowe, is making her directing debut about a pregnant woman who goes on a killing spree. It's called Prevenge. Mm-hmm. And Lowe describes it as a post-feminist revenge movie, saying she wanted to dispel the common image of pregnant woman as safe, sweet, kind person. Mission accomplished, I'd say. Yeah, no, no. that's I've never trusted pregnant women. <laughs> so I'm, you know... Yeah, I'm already on her side. On <laughs> Prevenge is a great title. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and of course, you know, sightseers. She was a standout in that. Mm. So yeah, I'm definitely on board for that. Yeah, good stuff. Look, I mentioned Maureen O'Hara's debut in Jamaica Inn earlier, and this past week she passed away at the age of 95. Mm. There were brief mentions on the news, a couple of clips of her in some John Wayne film. How green was my valley, probably. But it's worth taking a moment to consider a career that began in 1938. And lasted through to the year 2000 Whoa. when she stopped uh, stopped acting. How many actors can claim to have worked for over 60 years? Or to be considered the only actress Wayne liked to work with because she was a great guy. <laughs> Apparently it's one of his quotes, which I love. She was strong and spirited in, in her performances. You can see what Wayne meant when he called her a great guy. And she brought depth and backbone to thin roles. I'm sure at the time she was described as feisty and fiery a lot as well. Uh, but that seems kind of condescending, so let's not go there. Yeah. But she wasn't considered a great actress, perhaps. Her sole Oscar was an honorary one she accepted earlier this year. Right, well. Um, but John Ford adored her, and Charles Lawton championed her. And I'll take those two gentlemen's opinions any day of the week. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Well, Lawton knows a thing or two. As to yeah, yeah. John Ford. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Directed by George Clooney, produced by Joel Silver, and written by the Coen brothers. That's the kind of film you want to know is in production. And Suburbicon is a return to the noir roots of the Coen Brothers' debut, Blood Simple. And so that's uh, that's in production, apparently. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, set in the 50s, I think. Yeah. Um, so that should be pretty interesting, um, especially on the um, on the tale of Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar looks amazing. Well, yeah. Though. Yeah, it looks yeah, really, really good. Yeah, I love that trailer. Yeah. yeah. And all it, it's funny to see all the people, you know, ticking off all the people who work with them normally. Yep. There's Clooney, yep. Brolin. Tilda Swinton, yep. and everyone's just turning up. Yeah, it? yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, there's another there's staple, yeah, Francis yeah, yeah. McDormand's in it. So, yeah. Repertory company. Uh, and look, finally from me, Bruce Willis thinks the terrible idea of a Die Hard prequel is a great idea, mm. which means we'll probably get to see the John McClane origin story as directed by Len Underworld Wiseman sometime soon. I'm guessing the story of a regular beat cop prior to the whole Hans Gruber situation turned him into an unlikely hero who slowly morphed over the franchise into a smug, reluctant superhero. I say reluctant because... That's how Willis played him. We'll be betrayed by making him a kick-ass, unkillable badass from the get-go. I doubt the film will have the gritty French connection vibe it needs. Um, this is being made by Len Wiseman, after all. And I pity the poor sap who has to play young John McClane as well. Yeah, oh, They'll just get Joseph Gordon-Levitt as they do for all of those. Oh, look, it, this idea sounds terrible. Because, <laughs> I mean, really, that character's born in Die Hard, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, exactly. You know, everything up to that is just regular cop. Yeah. Because mm. you don't... It, that's the whole point, is that he's not... You, 
<laughs> I could go on a rant about that. I think you it, want to talk about prequels ruining things. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's not going to ruin Die Hard. I mean, no, but um, there is talk about, uh, and I think probably this is why Willis is hyping it up about him filming like bookends to it. I like, so I like to imagine that it's going to be like the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. <laughs> and it'll be the Young John McClane Chronicles. Maybe it should yeah. be a TV show. Yeah, you know, where each week he, you know. What's he going to do? Just like isn't he just going to like do investigation of normal like as a, as a New York cop, like I, just just investigating domestic violence and things. Holy, just a lot of paperwork. <laughs> yeah, just a lot of paperwork, donuts, yeah. donuts, paperwork, going to the bar. Yeah, um, and you know uh, his marriage falling apart. Yeah, if you look closely at the thumbnail pictures that adorn the Spoiler Alert podcast, you'll see I'm wearing a t-shirt celebrating the killer. I still own that shirt, and I'll be wearing it when I watch the remake because John Woo. It was all but disappeared from his blockbusting heyday, has said that he is going to make an American version of his legendary 1989 calling card. Even though I'm more of a sucker for hard-boiled, there is no underestimating the impact that the killer had on cinema, and thematically and narratively it is Wu's strongest film. In this day and age, it's likely to get lost in the mix of direct-to-DVD action films, but even a watered-down, decades-too-late remake of The Killer will catch my eye. And uh, Wu also seems to have a great attitude of towards making films, wishing to make a movie in every country, he said. Uh, since his latest film, Manhunt, is set in Japan, he wants to possibly mo- possibly move to India or Cambodia or England as his future locations. Mm. Sure, this has been talked about many times before it over totally the years. Has, I think yeah, we've yeah. talked about it probably. But, you know, he seems pretty determined that I, that's what he's going to do. I would assume someone else re- re- would um, remake it, not Will himself, though. Yeah, that's right. I think that in the past he's had other directors attached, but... And like I say, I mean, it's way too late to be making remakes of The Killer, I'd assume. Yeah, totally. It's not going to jump yeah. on the John Woo zeitgeist of 1992. Yeah, that dove has flown. <laughs> yeah. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that off. What are you? Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. And welcome to No Comps. This is the section of the podcast where we go out, uh, watch a film, a new release, and then review it. And uh, this month we've gone for Paranormal Activity. The Ghost Dimension, after all, it's Halloween. Mm. Uh, directed by Gregory Plotkin and starring Chris J. Murray, Britt Shaw and Ivy George. Mike comes to stay with his brother Ryan, sister-in-law Emily and their child Leela. After finding a box of VHS tapes from the 80s that contain witchcraft ceremonies and a unique camera capable of displaying spectral images, the brothers discover that something supernatural has taken an interest in the child of the house. Uh, you've got one of the characters. You're, you, you've got blonde woman in denim shorts. Oh, yes, of course. I, I'm not sure who she is, what she's yeah. doing there. Well, I was in this discussion with my girlfriend last night, yeah. and we were going, how is she related to them? Is she like someone's not sister-in-law? Or is I don't she? know that it's explained. There's a throwaway yeah. line about rehab, which is... Yeah, and then she says, I'm a yoga retreat. But I'm like, where do you live, and how do you... Yeah. Has anyone got to do with you? Yeah. I don't want to get into it too much, but we've been talking about what people do for a job. In this film, I'm like, what do any of you people do? Oh, um... No, actually, no. I'm. Not, I'm. Not Do you know? No, I'm not going to try to answer that because <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, one of them's a video game designer. Ah, oh, right. So that's the husband's a video yeah, game designer. Yeah, which is why right. he's got cameras and lives at home. He's got big TVs. Right. And likes technology. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So there you go. But the rest of them, I have no idea. Um. No. No. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, no reason to look. Before we get going, I've only seen one other paranormal activity film, and, oh. was, and that was the first one. This is just, this is just Back to the Future yeah, Part Two I all know. over again. <laughs> look, I, look, I enjoyed the first one a whole lot. Uh, I wasn't convinced I needed to return to see how they could set up cameras in new places to film sheets being lifted in new ways, and you know people standing around for hours on end. You know, mm. I, I kind of felt I'd seen that one and done for me. Mm-hmm. Now I went to the screening courtesy of Darren Bevan, who has seen the franchise. And pointed out that there is a mythology at play, obviously. Mm. Friend of the podcast, Darren Bevan. Yeah, that's his official title. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that I would probably benefit from having followed it. Though even he seemed disappointed with how this entry paid off on that mythology. So I'm, I don't mm. know. So look, no doubt I'll miss details that might seem important to the fan base. And I'm sure there's an extra layer of reward for those fans as well. But I'm of the opinion that you should be able to walk into movies like Paranormal Activity Part 5, I think. Mm. Relatively cold and still be able to enjoy them. Much as I did with Back to the Future 3. <laughs> well, look, I shockingly have seen all of these paranormal activities. How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. Sky. It's because I own Sky. Yeah. And um, that is the sole way I've watched every single one. I, I lie. I saw the first one at the movies and all the rest I've seen on Sky. 
And I've even seen the Halloween 3 season of The Witch uh, Paranormal Activity, which is Paranormal Activity, the marked ones. Right, yeah, the one where they just go off base. Which basically has nothing to do, I think they mentioned the character of Katie in there. Um, but it pretty much, from memory, has nothing to do right. with anything. But it was the same. Uh, I was trying to think in my mind and, and clarify all of the paranormal activities, separate them from each other, and I couldn't. I was like, I, I can't remember what happens in which one. And I think mm. two's the sister. So one's Katie, two's the sister and her family, three's the, them when they're kids, and then four's like the babysitter for the hunter kid who's in this. Right. And then there's the marked ones and then there's this. And I was just, I can't remember. I, I know that pretty much all of them end in this like coven of witches thing. Right. And so, but it's just, um, it, it's just a mess. And I think they're making the mythology up on the literally, film. literally with each film. Yeah. I, th- I don't even think it's working towards. I anything. get the impression that it's just a way to make regular fans turn yeah, up. who might right. drop off. Um, but otherwise keep it so that anyone can watch. Yeah. A bit like the Saw films in that respect, I yeah, think. Yeah, probably. Uh, and that, uh, you know, it's a whole bunch of people each time, and you know what you're going to get. You're going to get nasty traps. Yeah. But there is a sort of a storyline moving forward through the series. Yeah, and over the years, the Paranormal Activity series has kind of gradually moved away from its humble beginnings as a low-budget shocker, reveling in the anticipation of things that go bump in the night. Uh, now it's just a slick machine that seems intent on myth building at a rate that is as slow as the pacing of the first film. Mm. But <laughs> this myth building that they do, they pretty much do it in the last five minutes of each film. Uh, look, the, the characters seem a bit thin, you know, outside of the possessed child. Pretty impressive Ivy George, I thought. Yeah. Uh, the parents are fine, but then we have a woman whose role, as we said, might have been written as hippie eye candy. And the guy who's the pothead loser comic relief, essentially. Yeah. Um, I got a laugh out of him, observing the little girl in the back of a shot, taking the minutes. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was great. A genuinely funny, slightly meta moment, which I enjoyed. Yeah. But when he yells, next time I'm staying at mum's, it's a kind of a cheesy moment killer for me. Yeah. It doesn't so much diffuse the tension as just like drain it. Mm. You know what I mean? It's not there to make you relax because the scares are still going on. So mm. it's just actually killing the moment. Yeah. Um, and also, it's a cliche, you know? Yeah. I did. I I actually think um, the being the paranormal activity expert that I am, yeah, um, accidentally, uh, that they're probably the most uh, probably the most likable out of all of the characters. Yeah, and they're not unlikable. I'm. Um, I wouldn't say. No, yeah. no. But that's what I mean. Is that I think the the other films probably had people you didn't really feel anything for. Like right, you right. didn't really get. You didn't really. Yeah, the human beings. So obviously, when they're in peril, you're like, okay, yeah, that that, that stink. Um, but they're not necessarily people you, I couldn't even tell you who they are, or I couldn't even really yeah. remember them. Whereas these guys, they had some one-liners, but that, that speaks to, like I say, how it's kind of moved away from the initial feeling of paranormal activity that, you know, the characters, they deliver the pithy one-liners and the narrative runs and I felt was like quite a standard horror film fashion. And, uh, you know, after an hour and a half of build up, um, episodes two and three, like I said, episodes two, three, and four, and each of those they have this frustratingly brief finishes involving witches and covens. And Ghost Dimension decides to do the reverse and start with the witches and the covens. Yeah. So you kind of know what's going on. Uh, that's, it, not, that's also not found footage either. No. Which that's is right. weird. Yeah. No, it's slightly unusual. Yeah. Mm. It is. It's very unusual. And, and again, it's stepped away from that, hasn't mm. it? You know, the camera kind of only occasionally allows the characters within the film to be a witness to the evil that is manifesting. Instead, it's used for audience scares. And it even replicates the uh, original chilling scene when we see in Fast Forward, yeah. Katie standing over a sleeping husband for an hour. Uh, in the original, it's creepy. And in the fifth installment, it's just not. Yeah. Um, is this because it's an inky, inky blob of CGI? Yeah, but also because you're like, I've, I've seen you do this Definitely once, if not twice yeah. or three times, yeah. probably. It actually made me think, how many times have they done this? Probably every time. And, and and that's a lot of the problem is that they do reveal what, you know, they do reveal a spectral image, so you do see that. Unseen works so much better. Look, the 3D is probably the worst utilised I've seen in some time in a film. Right. Uh, the film is not in 3D throughout. Mm. And considering we were watching found footage, you'd have to wonder why and how it's in 3D in the first place. Yeah. Like, whose handicam shoots in 3D, you know? <laughs> how is that possible? Because the effect is using sparingly, all it does is highlight that something will be hurled at the camera every time you go into 3D. Yeah. You go, ah, uh, they're going to chart something right now. Mm. So possibly a ropey CGI effect. Uh, that's ruining the shock value. It just takes it away from it. Right. Also, it just looks flat and not particularly well staged, I thought, mm-hmm. in the 3D. Um, 
And at first I thought they'd use the mystical 80s era camcorder to explain the effect, you know? That would make sense. There's already a line about it having like six lenses or something and an mm. extra focus ring. And I thought, ah, okay, this is cool. It's the Super Ghost Cam that records in 3D as well. Yeah. Um, but before long, all the cameras seem to have caught the multidimensional ghost cam disease. And there's actually even a line there about like all the cameras can now pick it up. Oh, is there? Because yeah, I, there's I, a, like a throwaway line about, yeah, all the cameras are, you know, that showing up on the other cameras now. And it's like, oh, okay. And it doesn't make sense to me. Because initially, that was quite, I, I didn't mind the 3D so much. You know? Like, I, I see what you're saying about like it drawing you out of it, but I thought that at, le- at least you used it for audience scares. So I think 3D in and of itself, right. at least at least it was a purpose to it. Yeah, but for rather me, than in, you knew that when you went to 3D, it's like, ah, here we go, scare coming Yeah, up, you know, it's like really telegraphed it for me. Yeah, but then again, like, you know, you kind of had those inky moments, you know, where it's just all standing there yeah. and hovering over, and so you weren't too sure. Um, and, and I thought that it was kind of what was good is when they had the one camera that was capable of picking yeah. up, and then it would show sometimes in the same room, just, you know, nothing there. Yeah. So you were, depending on what you cut to. Yeah. So I thought that, that was good in increasing the tension um, because you couldn't see it in yeah. most of the other cameras. So, yeah, so once they. Um, but they they play just you know fast and loose with fast that, and eh? loose with, yeah. with with so many rules. The repetition is supposed to be a kind of a, a build up to a sense of dread and claustrophobia. But this film knows you've seen it all before multiple times, so it ramps up the visuals and the timeline of events kind of so quickly that now you're getting like it's not just things that go bump in the night. You're getting exorcist, priest, rabid children, ghostly apparitions, demonic faces, and time portals like all before the final act. Mm. You know which. Again, if you watch some of those other paranormal activities, they're not necessarily better than this, but it's completely different from what it was. This is the most standard, straightforward horror film out of all of them that I've seen, um, for better or worse, mm. I guess, because you know how often do you want to keep doing the same thing over and over again? Yeah. It just kind of ran them into brick walls at the end as well, like you know the characters. You, you, it was inevitable where it was heading, um, and there weren't too many there weren't too many twists or anything. No. And um, this is the part of spoiler alert where you might want to skip forward a minute because we're going to do a real bit of spoiler alerting. Yeah, fast forward like you're fast forwarding. Yeah, you know the, the ink monster standing yeah, over yeah, the yeah. girls. That's right, and like Duncan will stand still for that whole time. Yeah, yeah. Look, one of my wee gripes with found footage, and folks, I'm um, like I say, I'm in spoiler alert territory here. Uh, but one of my gripes is that everyone dies. Mm. Um, Darren pointed out an exception, and the decent enough killer Bigfoot film exists where somebody does get away. But it's almost the exception, and I kind of wanted a slither of hope in this film. Um, and I understand this is the way paranormal activity films work. Mm. It's grim every time. Maybe it's because I was raised in the poltergeist films where no one ever dies, you mm. know? But I just wanted to see the found footage film where at the end we see all the kids in the lounge rejecting a VHS from the top of the top loader and say, wow, how crazy was it that we all got out of that summer camp alive, you know? <laughs> yeah. That'd be nice. Um, so that was pretty bleak. But And this is a weak gripe, but telling, I think. Did the killer have to pause before throttling the woman to death at the end? And like do that little caress of her, mm. you know. So it, it felt there was this kind of slightly queasy feeling I got that it felt like there was almost a sexual assault that could have happened in that moment. You know right. what I mean? Okay. It was just a little bit intimate, and and then just a bargain basement. You know, feet twitching, strangulation. You, you've seen a million times. Yeah. So I I just felt that ending was. I mean, it was bleak, and maybe that's what the film series always does. Mm. But does it have to? That is the problem with it. We're still in spoiler alert territory here, people. Mm-hmm. If you're <laughs> yeah, sorting through, yeah, yeah. Um, because yeah, the end of and the end of all of them, that everyone dies and right. and the possessed people wander off. I was hoping, possibly, or just thinking that they might try and do something different. Yeah, and also because the char- these characters seem to get onto the plot quicker than they normally do in paranormal activity because these paranormal activity ones can bother you with how long it takes people to catch up to where you are. Whereas these guys, it only kind of took them a little while to catch up to where you right. are, like probably a third of the time yep. that it normally does. So I was thinking maybe they will do something different or at least one of the characters might survive, like the mother or whatever. Um, but yeah, they, they, and they iced people and kind of almost too quickly and almost with no tension and with no, you know, oh, um, you know, totally um, yeah. hippie girl, yeah. vicious and short and fast and yeah. Oh, yeah. And it just seems strange to kind of do do that i was like well you could have you could have mined so much more out of that yeah um uh, out of the deaths basically yep. if you wanted to so it did get me on a couple of jumps early oh, on totally look i'm not going to deny that it's got some, some effect. look um 
I'm just going to keep going with a couple of objections. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, so one of the things about haunted house movies, um, and the Paranormal Activity series, you know, it comes up and it came up in the first one really is the whole why don't you just move? Mm-hmm. You know, especially when there's no great reason to stay. Uh, the first paranormal, paranormal activity addressed this by saying it's the individual who's haunted mm-hmm. and not the house. Um, the ridiculously entertaining Insidious even had the homeowners make the smart decision and relocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's a film with the owners who bought the property with precious due diligence, I felt. Mm-hmm. They should have done some more work on that, you know, yeah. really done some investigation. <laughs> um, uh, really should have moved well before the point of the film when they did move. Uh, yes, they bring in a priest, and yes, he says moving out won't help. But all the, same, all the signs seem to me to be saying, actually moving out really would help. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't believe that priest for a moment. Mm. Um, there are physical leftovers from the cult members who used to own the house. They were coaxed into buying the house precisely so the spooks could target their child. Yeah. They had to be in that house. Mm. And there's a freaking portal to the other dimension right inside the kid's room. Mm. Uh, move already. And preferably not to this five minutes child walk down the road. Yeah. You know? That's right. I mean, I know the film says moving won't help. But I don't believe them for a second. Yeah. I think moving would have helped immeasurably. Yeah, I think as well. I think, um, yeah. And it also suffers from what I like to think of as Dracula's Castle Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where our heroes decide to explore Dracula's castle in the hope of finding him in repose and driving a stake to his heart. And naturally, they start out searching for him at 5.50 p.m. Yeah. So, you know, giving themselves just enough time to find his tomb. If they're lucky, knock off one of his, you know, his underlings and then get bitten by the count when he wakes up. Uh, what they should really do is like take the coach. I'm, I'm getting off target a little bit here. Back to Carlsbad, stay at the inn, <laughs> garlic all around the bed, and then up at dawn and have a whole day of sunlight to find the yeah. counts too. Uh, likewise, the characters in Ghost Dimension always just going, just getting going in late afternoon. I mean, mm. they're sleeping until at least midday. Yeah. And then having a leisurely lunch, and then about 3 p.m., they start <laughs> thinking, hey, we should do something about the ghost, you know? Yeah. Um, they're wasting their mornings, and they're stuck in a haunted house again at night, and for some reason, the ghosts only go ghosting at night. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know why that is, mm. but knowing that they do, they've got to do more with their days. Yeah. Also, the thing, leave your lights on. Oh, like, leave the lights on in the house. Like, wh- is it going to be that? Uh, also, you worried about your power bill? Yeah, exactly. Like, leave the lights on in the house. Um, maybe don't all complete. Why don't you all sleep in the same room? Totally. I mean, that's why I've like, got that written down here. Yeah. 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 Like, there was so many things. And because you're given the time in these films to think about this, because you have these, you know, Title cards come up night number four and, you know, December 16th. And you're like, boy, you're still in the house. I would be a shivering wreck Mm. if I experienced one of those nights. I would be doing, I wouldn't be, oh, I fell a a bit asleep at 11 o'clock. This is a Nomer on Elm Street, you know what I mean? And to be fair, we don't have children we're trying to protect. (laughs) I mean, they keep leaving the girl in her room alone repeatedly. Just all the time. I think the most common line in the film is just go back to sleep. Yeah. You know? How about instead you take her back to your room and she can stay in your bed tonight? Yeah, that's right. I mean, j- just go back to sleep. Yeah, she's, you've got a ghost trying yeah. to take her soul. Yeah. There were some good scenes in there. There was this, like I like the creepy scene when they're explaining the people on the VHS tapes are, uh, yeah. are basically channeling these people, or channeling into the room that these people are watching them in. It was very, you know, circular and, um, uh, yeah, time, time yeah. and time dimension all yep. jumps. So I thought that that was a good scene. Unfortunately, I think I'd seen that in the trailer. I think I saw the trailer yeah, and the I was trailer. like, yep. yeah, so I kind of like, ah, oh, that was one of the better scenes in there. Um, some of the dialogue was nice, you know, uh, funny. I like the part when um, they could see the spectral vision uh, out outside and they were following it with the camera and the, the blonde woman said to Mike, you know, the stoner brother was like, oh, um, you know, just be quiet or those you'll scare it. And he's like, me scare it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like those kind of moments. I also liked how curious they were initially, like the father and, and, and um, the blonde one, and particularly how, how curious they were about the spectral visions. They seemed like all this, you know, getting to the other side. Mm. Um, didn't seem like a responsible thing to do, particularly seeing as you've got a young daughter in there. Yeah. But I, could, I, did, I did appreciate it rather than being freaked out and wanting to get out straight away. It was like a more curious, what yeah. is this thing? Um, in the sense that something's growing, although I don't agree with, hey, if you just ignore it, it'll go away. Yeah. There's a lot of rules where I'm like, I don't know about that. Yeah, totally. And um, I actually thought that, again, this is a spoiler alert part of it. Okay, yeah. Um, I actually thought, I was going, oh, that would be kind of cool if, you know, when the priest came along and was like, I don't really know much about this, but 
how about we try this and we we make this um yeah you know we, we draw a pentagram and we try and trap it i thought it'd be kind of cool if he was one of the coven yeah and, and had actually you know no one would listen to these people and think oh you need an exorcist but he knew that they would be that would be one of the I kind of had those feelings myself actually, and I was yeah. like oh that's going to happen and it didn't and I was like that's a bit of a missed opportunity I would have done that yeah yeah so yeah. yeah look I agree there were some creepy scenes I did enjoy as well uh that scene when they're outside and a force moves across the pool and just the, pool, yeah. the water ripples uh, it captures a bit of the menace of the sheets being lifted you know in the first film mm. I really like that um you know which proves that you don't need like inky what those material to create chills and in a completely different style i like when they attempt to trap the spirit like you say in the pentagram mm. by hurling a holy water soaked sheet over it and it kind of rears up and flails around and looks like for all the world like a truly scary version of the least scary and cheapest halloween costume of them all yeah. just a sheet mm. you know dude in a sheet and i thought it was a really nice touch actually mm. you know they actually managed to scare us with the lamest it, it, what could have been the lamest scare possible yeah and it worked really nicely yeah that's right I will, I will say as well that I think that um, this one, just for just for the scare moments, probably has more, uh, more scare moments in it than, than the series has had in a long time. On this, it was showing the shark and jaws too much for me as well. Where right, you yeah, kind of see too. it all the yeah. time where it was walking down the hallway and all the rest of it. You know. Yeah, you haven't made me want to see the other films by talking like this, I've got to say. No, no, and you shouldn't. And I shouldn't have watched them either. Particularly, the, I think the third one's all right because it's got the, the, I think it's good performances from the, and and it's no surprise that they bring uh, an incarnation of those twin or the daughters back. Right. Because I think that the third one is the one, the second and fourth ones are just, and the marked one. They're all just meaningless, you must or not. You pretty much could have gone one, three, and then this if you really wanted to. Right. So, yeah, because the other ones are just, who needs them? It's just cashing in. Yeah. Paranormal Activity 2 is Halloween 2. Right. You know what yeah, I mean? It's yeah. like, oh, we're going to add a myth into this. It's a family. It's a, all this stuff. The production team, I just couldn't help noticing this. They sound like a bunch of people trying to hide their identities, you know? Director Plotkin, co-writer Jason Pagan, and Brantley Awful. <laughs> I mean, that's just made-up names, eh? <laughs> for God's sake. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? And now it's time for the top five. Kids are inherently creepy, right? right. It's a combination of those innocent-looking faces that mask a complete lack of understanding about the way the world works in the sense that they could do just about anything in their tittering kind of playfulness, from knocking poor Lee Remick off a ladder with the tricycle in The Omen to relentlessly stabbing their own mother to death with a trowel in Night of the Living Dead. Like mischievous, murderous little robots with cherubic masks, kids are some of our favourite movie monsters, which is why we decided to put together a Halloween-infused list of our favourite creepy kids. So, look, my first one is, there are a few horror films out there that aren't about just one scary kid, but instead show what happens when hordes of the little blighters pull their resources and go a-stalking. Uh, my first candidate for a film about a gaggle of the sinister rugrats was 1980's The Children, the story of a busload of tykes who come out the wrong side of a radioactive cloud with these blackened fingernails and the urge to give you a nice big explosive hug. <laughs> um, it's a cheaply made flick with a great premise, made even more unsettling when the parents discover the only way to stop their flaming offspring is to lop off their hands. Whoa. Yeah, it's a really dark premise, and it doesn't, because of the production values, it doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the idea of it, mm. I'd love to see it remade by someone who could do it justice. But look, that's not the one I went for. Right. I went for the far better 1976 film, Who Can Kill a Child? which pits a young couple, including a pregnant woman, against an entire island of killer kids. Nice. The movie even found a way to surprise me. When one of the island's children approaches the pregnant woman, touches her belly, and then just calmly leaves. Ha ha, I thought the child is recognised. She's carrying the next generation of murderous kids that will allow her to escape and maybe give birth off the island, leading to sequels and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But, and this is somewhat of a spoiler alert moment again, folks, Who Can Kill a Child has dark ideas in its head, and before long, her unborn child joins the ranks of the island's wee killers and destroys her from the inside. Whoa. It is bleak and helpless moment as the husband watches his own wife and child die in front of them. One of the cruelest deaths I've seen in a horror film in some time. That's amazing. Yeah, it was traumatic. It was just yeah. blood running down her leg and just a helpless look on her face and her husband unable to do anything. Uh, it was a really grim. It's a great little film. I mean, really dark. Yeah, I've heard of this. And I never got around to watching it. So right, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I think Spanish, Italian, English co-production or something. Wow. Yeah. 
Some creepy kids are simply gifted actors utilising their skills like Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense. But then there are kids who are simply creepy kids who are probably creeping people out on set. They are otherworldly children like Heather O'Rourke in Poltergeist or especially my first pick, Isaac from Children of the Corn. The actor who portrays Isaac, John Franklin, has a growth hormone deficiency leading to an unnerving appearance. The feeling that something isn't quite right with him Amish dress sense, squeaky voice, and piercing eyes make Isaac that horror film wonder stuff, both laughable and terrifying. He's the cult leader who will do anything to appease and praise the deity, known simply as he who walks behind the rose. And this happens to mean killing everyone over the age of 21 in appropriate farming fashion with sickles or scarecrows. Stephen King's short story has ballooned into his longest-running series, containing a frankly unbelievable eight sequels. Amazing. Nuts. Um, but Isaac is the uh, reason for anyone's in- initial interest. Um, he's stuck with me. I remember seeing that when I was probably quite young. I saw right. Born. I have seen it, but not for such a long time. I, you know. Yeah, oh, well, that's a good point. I haven't seen it in a long, long time either. So I don't actually know um, how effective it is now. But yeah. he made an indelible image. And like I say, he always had the kind of Amish look to him and that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a effective he's uh he's really really creepy in it yeah i think he turns back up in some other ones as well yeah i'm pretty certain yeah yeah in 1968 george a ramirez night of the living dead changed the face of horror maybe not right away but the ripples it caused are still being felt today every zombie film since was born in that black and white boarded up house in the middle of a field in pittsburgh every episode of the walking dead should come with a disclaimer saying based on the works of george a ramirez Mm. but it's not just the shuffling undead that would prove inspirational it's the film's alarmingly bleak to- tone and graphic gore that can perhaps best be summed up by the wee zombie girl locked in the basement. Mm. Uh, in the film's darkest moment, she attacks her own mother and amidst gushes of monochrome blood and screams of terror, repeatedly stabs her to death with a trowel. Uh, look, The Night of the Living Dead Zombie Girl is perhaps the most iconic matricide committing monster in cinema. Her eerie face adorns almost all of the DVD cover releases. Mm. And the first zombie step in the direction of a darker, bleaker era of horror to come. Mm. It is, um, it is, it's very bleak. So I think I actually saw Dawn of the Dead, the 70s film first. Sure, I did. And then I saw yeah. Night of the Living Dead. Um, and yeah, and I found Night of the Living Dead actually bleaker. As much as Dawn of the Dead gets that kind of credit, I actually think Night of the Living Dead is. Well, well Dawn of the Dead has a scene where they throw um, cream pies at zombies' faces. Yeah. And, you know, people survive. And the yeah. nights, there's no way out of that, eh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah fantastic. He was originally supposed to be played by a boy. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they couldn't find a boy, so they went with the girl who's the daughter of one of the other actors in the film. Right, and and, and you're right. It is, I think, that and the ending are the most um, indelible images from that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's her face, like I say, most of the covers, but the hair sort of hanging down half of her face, mm. and yeah, it's, it's such a great image. If kids are creepy with their eerie childishness, the innocence from 1961 plays on its title by their children's lack of innocence. They use inappropriate language, disturbing in its vivid adult lyricism. Martin Stevens made an impression in the more popular Village of the Damned the year before, but here it is through his very human engagement with his caregiver Deborah Carr that he disturbs even more. Stripped of supernatural tricks and the autonomous nature of his collective in Village of the Damned, Martin Stevens' Miles is possessed by a very real human spirit, one that wants to continue its original incarnation's carnal desires. Deborah Carr is brave in her embracing of the material, but the young Stevens's confidence and delivery of the disturbing and adult dialogue is quite startling. Mixing sexuality with children is a tightrope, even nowadays, as is indicated by the film Birth, I think from 2004. And so in 1961, it was cinematic suicide, the film receiving an X rating on release in the UK. But it's the beautifully shot finale with the unique child performance of Stevens that sticks long in the memory. Mm, good choice. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I really enjoyed that film. And it's a film yeah. that um, just stays with you for a long time. Incredibly shot. I've talked about it on this podcast before, but a couple of times, I think. But his performance in that was, um, there is something uh, of, yeah, real confidence in how he's delivering the material. And I'm sure that they would have shielded them from some of what it meant. Yeah, um, I'd imagine, yeah. Look, my final pick is, well, kind of a questionable inclusion. The character is definitely one of cinema's creepiest kids, but the actor is almost definitely not a child. But who knows for sure? <laughs> the film I'm talking about is 1981's 
Seminole Zombie Flick Burial Ground. Yes. If it wasn't for Peter Barks' portrayal of the sexually adventurous, I don't know, preteen, are we thinking? Who knows? Michael, Burial Ground would be just another mindless, slow-moving, artless Italian zombie film with the occasional spurt of blood to grab your attention. But Bark turns it into a notorious must-see gore film. From the first moment we see Michael, we can tell something's kind of off. Constantly clinging to his mother's apron strings, Michael is clearly positioned and dubbed as a young boy, but the actor playing him was apparently 26 years old at the time. <laughs> I say apparently because much of what we know about Bark is hearsay and myth-making. Likewise, it's not clear that he's a dwarf or a midget. He just seems to be a small, ghastly-looking little man. Uh, one of my favourite moments is Michael tucked into bed by his doting mother. And as she leaves the room, his eyes spring open as the camera zooms in on his freaky staring man-boy eyes. But the moment that makes his performance legendary and explains why a small man was cast rather than a child occurs after a zombie attack when Michael's mother comforts him and kisses his head. And Michael reacts by pouring his mother's breasts and then sticking one pint-sized hand up his skirt. And a scene that someone in our Halloween screening where we played this described as the mother letting it go on way too long, <laughs> which is not inaccurate. Yeah. Um, later, Michael would join the living dead himself and confront his by now insane with loss and remorse mother, who reacts by allowing Michael to suckle, as he did when he was a child, presumably 20 plus years ago, um, an offer the undead Michael takes up with a zombie-like relish, helping to make Michael and the truly odd Peter Bark child horror movie legends. Very much so. Mm. Super disturbing. Super wrong. Yeah. I mean, he is... Obviously, I think both of us avoided putting Damien Omen in here. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's an easy I've one. seen that one. Yeah, or the, the, the twins from The Shining, you know. Yeah. Um, but Peter Bark, if you haven't seen Burial Ground, just stick with it for a good 40 minutes. There's some gold leading in that 40 minutes, but after about 40 minutes, it starts to really turn Yeah, it's, it's odd because nothing really spectacular happens with Bark for about 40 minutes. Mm. But you can't take your eyes off him because you're not sure what's going on. Yeah. He sounds like a child because he's dubbed as a child, but he doesn't look quite like one. Yeah. But clearly the film thinks he does. Yeah. That's <laughs> which right. is really unusual. But we're going to fool you with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now we're on to our favourite part of the show, your favourite part of the show, the tree of woe, named after Conan the Barbarian, um, where his enemy, the marvellously named Thulsa Doom, crucifies Conan on the tree of woe, where he is to consider his crimes contemplate them and we ask cinematic offenders each month to do the same so simon who are you hoisting on the tree of woe what or who are you hoisting? Uh, okay look last month duncan went after bond james bond and this month i think i'm gonna have a crack as well well yeah though to be fair i'm not sure either of us are actually going after the films yeah. so much as some of the language being used around the franchise and some of the conversations about it mm -hmm. so a week or so ago i'm reading the new zealand herald and there's art, an article about spectre near the end it says something along the lines of uh, starring alongside Daniel Craig are Christopher Walsh, Ralph Fiennes, and Dave Bautista. And the Bond girls include Leah Sado and Monica Bellucci. And I had to stop myself and ask, do we still call actresses in Bond films Bond girls? <laughs> uh, for a start, Belushi is 51 years old. And how does she still get called a girl? It's great that Bond should, as Craig decently points out, be with someone actually his own age. But we demean her when we simply call her a Bond girl. But why are any of these acclaimed and award-winning actors being called girls? And Bond girls as well, as if they're the personal property and, and chattels of James Bond himself. Mm. Craig may refer to the character as a misogynist, but I have to feel every time an article handily divides the cast between actors and Bond girls, then his character's job is being done for him. And I may have singled out the poor old hero, but let's be clear, almost all media have fallen into this trap of calling these actresses Bond girls. So it's hard for me to single out who exactly goes on the tree this month. So instead, in a rare display of spoiler alert grace, I'm just going to suggest everyone think about the year we're living in, 2015, <laughs> and perhaps move on from the word Bond girls and call them what they are, actors. Very true. Yeah, and Bond girls, I mean, there's, there's um, books called Bond girls. There's this yeah. documentary made by a pre previous Bond girl called Bond girls are forever. Right. And, um, yeah, they have, you know, it's it's a brand, isn't it? And, yeah. and it's, it's, it is worrying that people still are okay with calling it that, I guess. It it is what it is, and I and I and I know why it continues, but I just kind of think maybe now's the time to just yeah talk differently about this. Yeah, you're probably right. At the beginning of the year, I was hearing of the girl on the train, 
the book topped the bestsellers list and was described as the next Gone Girl. I heard they were making the film adaptation. So I flashed forward six months and I saw it scheduled to play on Sky Movies. Great. Sat down to watch it and was confronted with a wannabe noir film overlapping in voiceover, masquerading as monologue between detective and interviewee. Not so much dialogue as cascading streams of consciousness unfiltered in the script editing process, so it meant there were deluges of language pouring onto the audience with so many unnecessary synonyms and adjectives that it drowns one in its white water of meaninglessness. Did you find that metaphor ham-fisted, overindulgent, and confused? That's what this film is for the 20 minutes I watched it. Life is simply too short for bad movies, and if it is bad, it better be entertaining bad. Not pompous characters rattling off poetry to, to, to describe everyday events. What's worse is that the film begins with a flashback inside a flashback. So it's voiceover heavy. The dialogue is as if the actors are reading it for the first time. So will I put the adaptation of The Girl on the Train on the Tree of Woe? Probably not, because it hasn't even been made yet. This was a film that happened to share the same name as the New York Times bestseller. That adaptation is actually just in the casting process with some heavy hitters like Emily Blunt, Jared Leto, and Alison Janney attached. So I will join this version of The Girl on the Train on the Tree of Woe. And while it considers its complete failure as a film, I'll consider my complete failure as a movie fan to recognize that I was trying to watch a film that didn't even exist yet. <laughs> Classic. Oh, I love the fact I put nothing on the Tree of Woe, but you put two things on it, <laughs> one of them being yourself. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's a shocker. That <laughs> sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that that was uh, it's it's just rubbish. But please don't get it confused with the actual the girl on the train, which people say is really good. Right. And sounds like it's got sounds a killer promising. cast. So yeah. yeah, that should be coming up pretty soon. <laughs> oh, classic. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Right, so that's us uh, for the month. Um, Duncan, what was your favourite film of the month? Uh, it's a tough one because um, I didn't really see anything that bad, but I did see a lot of middling stuff. So I'm probably going to go out on a limb here and say Sicario. Um, just, right. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's worth watching. Yep. Um, it's, it's, it's not perfect by any stretch, um, but it's got enough. Like the tension in it is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and like I say, the, the score, really impressed with and Deacon's absolutely nails it. So... Um, I, I'd check that out out of the ones that I watched. I'm sure that yep. there's other ones on current release that are probably better, but that of the yep. ones I've seen, it's definitely up there. Wow, cool. Uh, look for me, and maybe it's just because of the towering figure of Charles Lawton. Maybe it's in honor of the fiery Maureen O'Hara. <laughs> there you go, got it in. She could have been a Bond girl, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> and maybe it's just because Jamaica in is a damn fun romp, but it's hands down my favorite film of a pretty woefully lean month, I'm afraid. Rightio. And so uh, we've got the Halloween night coming up on Saturday, 31st. On Saturday, yeah. So pretty pretty soon, in a, in a day or if, two. If you're listening to this, uh, stop listening, get down <laughs> to Spoon Studios in Ponsonby because it's probably Halloween. Yeah, that's right. We're probably there watching uh, uh, many of the films that look so tantalizing in the trailer that you cut, that wonderful trailer. I'm really looking forward to the um, the uh, Dracula one. Uh, Dracula's Dracula. probably my favorite Film of the night, um, mm -hmm. just most purely enjoyable. Anyway, yeah. Um, no, I'm really looking forward to all of them. Uh, oh, good excellent. stuff. And uh, the only one I've seen is John dies at the end. So I'm, I haven't seen any of the others. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward oh, to watching. Oh, cool. And cool. I'm looking forward to watching that again because it's just so bananas. Oh, so. Insane. Yeah. In the best possible way. Yeah. Uh, the track we're going out to is the Die Hard music video. So some guy called Guys Night, I think, on uh, YouTube, put together uh, a little music video telling you everything you need to know about the Die Hard franchise, all the stories. Except for the last one in Russia, because who cares? That was yeah. terrible. But this is, you know, obviously, hopefully he'll do like a, a fifth verse to cover that that one, but also a sixth one to, that becomes at the beginning to do the a prequel. prequel. The yeah, prequel yeah, that's yeah, going to be yeah, yeah, with yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, whoever else. Or oh, fake, fake nose on him. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Hey, um, what about the guy who played his son in the fifth one? Um, he could play young John McCain. That would make perfect sense. Yeah, he was he was about as popular as Mutt Williams in Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. With the crystal scales, so pretty much, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so that's the tune we're going out to. Um, yeah, we're all looking forward to the Die Hard prequel, and we're looking forward to Halloween. Totally, yeah, it's going to be awesome. So we'll see you all there, but we will see you next month. Look forward to it. Okay, cheers. Remember when we first met John McClane? Our guy picked him up from the plane and took him down the Nakatomi Tower to meet with Holly. He came to get her back and to be her man, but Hans and his buddies fucked up the plan, and that's about when everything went sour at the Christmas party and the terrorists.